Hey, it's Antoinette, and welcome to another episode of the Hormone Heartbeat Podcast. Today's episode in my fertility series is all about PCOS and what it looks like for women who already have this diagnosis or they have learned through their fertility workup that this is what's going on. And my special guest today is Dr. Anne Hussein, who is not only a PCOS sister, but a naturopathic doctor with a focus on helping women navigate the complexities of PCOS and other hormone concerns. Can't wait to share our interview with all of you today. Welcome to the Hormone Heartbeat Podcast, a podcast about female empowerment through menstrual cycle health, the true heartbeat of your hormone status. With each episode, we'll explore the foundations of hormone health with science, soulful and heartfelt conversations, a dash of sass and feminine pizzazz. Our dream is to arm you with exactly what you need to be an unstoppable female force, ready to achieve all that your heart desires and embrace your inner goddess. And here's your host, naturopathic doctor, birth Stula, fertility awareness educator, hormone enthusiast, and lover of pretty things, Antoinette Falco. Welcome, Anne. It's so great to have you on today's episode. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. So today we're going to talk about PCOS and specifically how PCOS is plays a role in a woman's fertility journey and what you need to know and what are kind of the key takeaways. And there was a previous episode generally about PCOS and about the four different types. And if you haven't checked that out, definitely go and listen to that one. But this one, we're going to really dive into talking about how it affects fertility. And uh, we're going to hear all from Anne, who is a naturopathic doctor who focuses on women's health. And she's going to share a lot of her her insights and wisdom with us. So let's start the interview by having you share a little bit about what led you to do the work that you do and particularly how that focused around women's health and PCOS. So I'm going to take you back to my first period, which came as a real shock to me. And I know you're similar um, <laughs> in the sense that you had the same kind of experience and a lot of women do, right? Like their first period, like they don't know anything or they don't know it's coming because when you bleed, typically we've been taught bleeding is not good. So we're up in, in Pakistan and um, we learned nothing about reproductive or sexual health in elementary school, like zero. So at the time, I kind of took it at face value and didn't think much of it. But as I grew older, my cycles became more and more irregular until I was in university. And I also started getting acne and extra hair growth. And I went to my doctor telling her all of these things. And her solution was putting me on the birth control pill, which really wrecked me. Um, I started getting migraines. My acne got worse. I gained more weight. Um, and it just felt really crummy on it. And now I'm not anti-birth control pill, but I am anti-not informed choice. Mm -hmm. um, I wasn't given the, all the information. Um, I wasn't told what to expect or what the birth control did. And I do find that it's offered as a first-line therapy as a non-contraceptive so often. So I really um, am pro-discussions around medications and, and treatments. Anyway, so after coming off the birth control pill, I uh, did a lot of research because I was a biochemistry major at McMaster, so I had access to PubMed, and um, I took all of my research back to my doctor and said, hey, can we investigate some, some blood work? And eventually we figured out it was PCOS, and I also had Hashimoto's thyroiditis. So that my story, plus what I hear from women uh, in my life and in my practice, that we don't know what's happening with our bodies, my blood work looks normal, but I feel 
really crummy, um, and just the general state of women's health care where women are under-researched, under-diagnosed, under-educated, under-aware, and that's really what's led me to becoming a naturopathic doctor and focusing on women's health and PCOS. I love that you said that. Your pro-informed choice, that is something we share, and I am super passionate about that. Just the mm-hmm. conversation, right? We're not we need to have practitioners that are allowing women to, to speak up about what they're experiencing and allowing them to just absorb all the information and all the knowledge that they really can make the best decision that works for them. I imagine, and you know, you had to make the decision when you chose to go on birth control way back when, and a lot of women like have to make that tough choice. And when it comes from a place of not knowing why they're on it is is like, a, is it a service to them? But if they know all the information and they still are like, this is what I need to do right now. And this is what makes sense. Then they can feel good about that decision and not worry about anything else that, you know, could come as a result of, of being on it because they know that it's, they know everything about it. They have, they're fully informed. For sure. And it, it can be disempowering, right? To go on a medication that you think is going to support you and then feel really crummy afterwards. Yeah. And um, when you have all the information and, and doctors are there to guide you, right? They guide you with, with the risk and they have this in their minds, but they're not really relaying that. So it's such, an, it's such a great way to have a conversation around a woman's health or just anyone's health. It doesn't have to be a woman, anybody. It's a great opportunity for both to learn from one another because then the doctor can make better decisions for the patient's health care and the patient can make a better decision based on what the doctor is saying and really reaffirming the treatment options that are laid out for them. Mm-hmm. Now, PCOS is a fairly, fairly complex con- condition and there's a lot of research, a lot of really positive research. And you kind of highlighted that in your story where you, you know, you were studying in university and you had access to you know, the good research <laughs> or the, you know, the reputable research that you, that you can access through PubMed. So I want to know from you, of all that research, it really does help clinicians diagnose. Um, but how would you define PCOS based on, you know, the research that we have to help practitioners diagnose it? So like, let's learn more about what our What's involved in diagnosing PCOS? What should women be looking for in terms of their symptoms? And then how do they bring that information to their doctor and maybe communicate, you know, I want to have these tests done in hopes to um, diagnose their, their PCOS? So PCOS, even though it stands for polycystic ovarian syndrome, we all know that a woman does not have to have polycystic ovaries for a diagnosis. But if we look at, we're looking at diagnostic criteria that's been laid out, uh, and typically that's the Rotterdam criteria. We're looking at uh, two out of three of number one, uh, polycystic ovaries. Number two, ovulatory dysfunction. So that can be um, a lack of periods after you've started having periods or or irregular menstrual cycles, and then signs or blood work that indicate hyperandrogenism, so high male hormones 
like testosterone. So that can be elevated in blood work, or you can have symptoms like excess hair growth, um, cystic acne, especially along the jawline or hormonal acne around the jawline and male pattern hair loss on the scalp. And you can also have her, like hirsutism or hair growth on the chest or on the pubic area, on the legs in different parts. So that's some of the diagnostic criteria that's traditionally been used. But when we're looking at it from a systems perspective, it's, it's really intertwined and interconnected, right? It's not like mm-hmm. one thing causes PCOS. There's genetics involved, especially if there's a family history of cardiovascular disease or diabetes. There's uh, the hormonal piece of it for sure. And then there's a the metabolic piece of it. So high insulin or insulin resistance. So insulin is a hormone that helps bring blood sugar into our cells and our cells become less responsive to insulin. That's what we mean by insulin resistance. So that's a big issue with PCOS. And then there's comorbidities, meaning that there's other conditions that can exist with PCOS, like vitamin D deficiency is so common. Thyroid problems are common. High BMI or obesity plays a role. And and all of these things feed into one another. It's not like it's one way. So like high Mm -hmm. testosterone can worsen high insulin or insulin resistance and high insulin resistance can then feed back into high testosterone. Vitamin D deficiency can lead to insulin resistance. So like there's all these like intricate factors. So a really robust assessment is very, very important. So we're looking at obviously what the patient is telling us. So what are the cycles like? What, how long have they been like that? Facial hair, hair loss, acne, medication use, birth control use, Accutane use. And then we also want to do ultrasound to look at what's happening um, in the pelvis and with the reproductive organs. And then there's blood work. So we can actually test for insulin resistance by measuring fasting insulin and fasting glucose and calculating something called HOMA-IR. Uh, looking at AMH, which is anti-malarian hormone, and this is oftentimes elevated in PCOS. Then obviously we want to look at sex hormones, not just testosterone, but also at estrogen, progesterone, LH and FSH, which are luteinizing and follicular stimulating hormones, and then inflammatory markers, vitamin D and your full thyroid panel, because all of those are usually affected in PCOS as well. So there's a lot to look at. So you want to have a good healthcare practitioner team. You want to, because it is a team effort too, right? So are you noticing in the women that you work with where they come to you with a diagnosis of PCOS or they suspect that they have it Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, you ask them what blood work they've had done and there hasn't been much done in terms of regular routine testing from like, let's say their family doctors or whoever they're seeking for primary care. What would you, what becomes your next step in terms of the blood work that is important to test? Do you, do you even bother with that? Like what becomes your kind of first step when a woman is coming to see you who may have, who has a diagnosis of PCOS, but she's still not feeling herself? Mm -hmm. So again, we go back to the assessment, see what blood work has been done. And I usually do fill in the missing pieces. So oftentimes insulin is run and it's normal or blood sugar is run and it's normal. Yeah. But when we calculate home IR, it's actually not normal. So testing those simultaneously and then testing some of those other pieces that I alluded to in the past, like 
you know, family doctors will run ferritin and like iron and B12. They'll run the HbA1c, which is a marker of your blood sugar and your fasting glucose. They might, may or may not run sex hormones. It really depends. And they don't really test for some of those inflammatory markers or even vitamin D, right? So I fill in those gaps because if when we have a full assessment and a full picture, then we can address everything properly, right? We can really have some targeted solutions um, that work really, really well. And sometimes PCOS is missed also because of uh, a lack of a proper assessment. And I, and I do often diagnose people with PCOS. Mm-hmm. Can you touch a little bit about HOMA IR and what that means for someone with PCOS? Like what does that information give us additional to what's been done um, via fasting glucose? So fasting glucose, as I mentioned before, is oftentimes normal in women with PCOS. So there is this, going back to that whole insulin resistance piece, there is at the foundation of PCOS or at the bottom of PCOS, you Usually there is some insulin resistance and making that calculation can shed light as to how much insulin resistance there is and how that might be impacting other areas because insulin can actually get into your ovaries, testosterone can get into your ovaries. So like these are things that actually impact ovulation, which is uh, oftentimes implicated in PCOS, not always, but it's one of the things that impedes fertility. It's one of the things that impacts uh, pregnancy outcomes as well. So we want to definitely take a look at the HOMA IR and then address it. So sometimes when we're when we're doing conventional care, metformin is prescribed and it does improve the rates of fertility and ovulation in women because it helps improve insulin sensitivity. And from a naturopathic perspective, we have some some nice tools in our mm. toolkit to address mm. that as well. Just thought we should highlight that for listeners as it may be a term that they hadn't heard before. So mm-hmm. that's excellent. So we're talking about PCOS and fertility, and you did mention that bit about ovulation and how, you know, if a woman is not ovulating, it seems obvious that she will have trouble conceiving. Let's start with shedding some light on the possibility of conceiving for women with PCOS. Like what, what are some of the key challenges that they may face? What does, what does the support look like? What does treatment look like? Let's start there. With PCOS, ovulation is really the prime focus of conventional care. And it is important, right? Like you're not going to release an egg to be, to, you know, get fertilized if you're not ovulating. So ovulation is important. However, sometimes the environment in which that ovulation is happening is missed in conventional care. And that's where naturopathic medicine is plays such an important role because that environment is not just important for conception, but it's also important for decreasing miscarriage risk and having a healthy pregnancy and ultimately having a healthy baby. So um, it's about ovulation. We want to address the vitamin D deficiency. If there's BMI issues, we and we know like a lot of women with PCOS do have a higher body fat percentage. So shifting weight can be helpful, not in a lot of, not in all cases and not uh, necessarily 
a huge amount. Usually 5% of weight loss is really helpful to regulate that ovulation piece. Thyroid, again, uh, is also plays a role. Oftentimes these women will have subclinical hypothyroidism, which means that their thyroid is beginning to underfunction, but it's oftentimes missed because it's not overtly underfunctioning. Mm-hmm. And then there's like obviously the stress component and the infl- inflammation component as well. So all of those play a re- role in conceiving, but also moving forward with miscarriage risk and um, pregnancy outcomes. And with PCOS, there is a higher infertility rate. There is a higher risk of miscarriage and there is a higher rate of gestational diabetes. So uh, diabetes during pregnancy, hypertension, and and different fetal outcomes, suboptimal fetal outcomes. So we want to also address all of those and be proactive about them. It's not just getting women to ovulate. It's also about addressing all aspects of the health to uh, to set them up for success. Because if you're spending all this time just ovulating, you don't want to get to get pregnant and then miscarry because we didn't address the environment. So this is one of those cases where even if it's a a woman's fertility is declining due to age, it's definitely worth it to take a little bit of extra time, three to six months to actually address the environment if possible. Because I actually love this phrase that one of our colleagues uses when talking about miscarriage and uh, PCOS. It's basically cardiovascular disease of the placenta because Mm. the placenta is providing blood to the growing baby. And with high insulin and high homocysteine, which are oftentimes found in PCOS, our blood vessels actually get constricted, which means that baby can't get enough blood flow, which also impedes the health of baby as baby's growing in utero. So all of these pieces need to be put together when we're talking about fertility in PCOS. I I love that you mentioned that because so much of conventional fertility care becomes strictly about getting pregnant and about help these women ovulate. And then once they ovulate, they'll get pregnant and then that's it. And then you're pregnant. But, you know, we as naturopaths really advocate for, well, it's actually about more than that. It's about your health Mm. during pregnancy. It's about the health of your baby, maybe even taking a step further, the health health of your grandbaby, because we know that it has that transgenerational effect. So yeah, I love that you mentioned that point. That's fantastic. And the placenta and miscarriage I mean, that can be a whole, that's a whole other conversation. We can talk about PCOS all day, yeah. (laughs) All right. So there is a ton of information on what's the best diet for PCOS. What would you say is the most effective diet generally for women with PCOS? Or maybe some of the more important guidelines that women should consider? Because I know, you know, saying the word diet can be overwhelming. But if you were to break it down simply, where would you... Where would you rec- where, what would you advise for women? So diet and nutrition is really fascinating, right? Because everyone responds to different things. Everyone wants different things. <clears throat> but when it comes to PCOS specifically, the key, the key things that I teach my patients is to start decreasing super processed foods. So we're talking, you know, candy, chocolate, cookies, chips, mm-hmm. those sorts of things. And leaning more towards whole whole foods. So we're talking, you know, plants, fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, um, that sort of thing. And that part of it is, is multi, it's multifactorial as well, right? Like it's multifaceted where when we have super, a lot of super processed foods, we actually know that 
it increases our caloric intake because we don't feel satiated enough and the hormonal cascade changes in our bodies. So we tend to eat more super processed foods when we're eating a lot of processed foods. And then when we're eating more whole foods and or we start replacing some of those foods with, with whole foods, we're having more fiber, we're have, usually having more protein and healthy fats. So that can be super helpful. I'm not really one to restrict a lot of carbs unless there's a lot of carbs going in. Um, I like a healthy balance between carbs, fats, and protein. So like a 40% carbs, 30 and 30 of fats and protein is usually sufficient. <clears throat> and with women who we might want to encourage some weight loss in to help them ovulate a little bit better, um, usually that's actually just even making that shift will decrease their caloric intake because they feel fuller. And also shifting women out of this all or nothing kind of pattern. Like diet is really hard to talk about too with a lot of people, right? Mm -hmm. So having a robust system around it or having a nutritionist or psychologist alongside can be helpful with those, with those pieces. But having this conversation where, you know, I know myself, uh, I used to eat like full bags of chips and then I used to be like, well, I've eaten a bag of chips. I'm now going to drink a can of pop and I'm going to eat like two mm -hmm. chocolate bars. So having some systems around, okay, you ate a bag of chips you're human that's okay and moving on from there so it's really a lot about education and it also depends on how much time we have so if we are working with a short fertility window then we throw more at them really quickly and if we have a longer time to work with or if fertility isn't the goal and it's regulating the cycles and having good health and decreasing risk for the future then we have some more flexibility of you know putting things in, taking them out, things out slowly over time and really focusing on a lot of those anti-inflammatory foods, which are foods that we all know are good for general health, like fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, whole grains, and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Oh, thanks. For that. I love that you shared about how you don't restrict carbs because that can be, that can be daunting for women because they'll read online about the best diet for PCOS and it'll say, you know, don't eat don't eat any carbs, like avoid everything. And like, mm -hmm. so yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. Um, and I also love that you touched about this, about the all or nothing mentality, because I think, I think as women, I, I know I feel this for sure where you're like, oh, okay, I've, I've cheated a little bit. I'm just going to like cheat some more. And then you just write off that day. But then, you know, that happens every, every, every single day. And then before you know it, you've like completely steered off how you want to be living your life or how you want to be eating do you have sure. any do you have any tips that like have worked for your patients in terms of helping with that all or nothing mindset? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so oftentimes I will refer to a psychologist if women are open to it, but I honestly talk about myself a lot because yeah. I we're all human. We all fall off the bandwagon. I still eat chips. I still <laughs> sometimes eat candy. I still eat cookies. You know what I mean? Like I, it's not yeah. like my diet is super clean all the time. I am only human. So humanizing that, I feel like it normalizes it for the patient as well, because it's not, it's what you do most consistently. That's what you know, transcribe yeah. to good health. So like just building that into the framework that it is very likely or pretty much guaranteed that you will fall off the bandwagon. Let's have some strategies to get you ba back uh, on track when that happens. So for myself, I, uh, and I learned this from a colleague, writing myself a letter that, Hey, Anne, yes. when you're stressed and you haven't slept well, you eat a bag of chips and then you drink pop and you have a chocolate bar. <laughs> so, so I have written myself a letter that says, and that's okay. 
Uh, mm-hmm. but you feel really crummy afterwards and you feel guilty and you can't sleep further because of that sugar overload. So when you get to that point or when you get halfway through the bag of chips, it's okay to just put it away. If you need help, message a friend, talk to your husband, talk to Dylan so that he can do it for you if you need that help. And then you know what? Go, instead of drinking your soda, go for a Perrier instead because you'll still get that fizzy without all that sugar. Yeah. So, so showing yourself self-compassion really gets us out of that guilt mode and it gets us out of that you know, downward spiral. And there's a lot of different strategies around that, but that's the one that works for me. Um, like I message a friend, I tell my husband, <laughs> and there's certain times where that is more prevalent and it's usually when I'm not taking good care of myself, right? Like that's when we all tend to downward spiral more than other times. Yeah. Giving ourselves the permission. That's always yes. been my... My go-to, and yeah, humanite. Like we, we are human. We do, we do have those those cheat days, and and then I, I find also being aware of what's going on in your, you know, in your mental health. Like, mm. are you overly stressed about something? Are you like, what are your emotions saying? Because you know, emotions and food are so 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 connected. And so don't think about that. Right. And and then we're really hard on ourselves because we're like, why are, why can't I stop eating, you know, a chocolate bar every day? Like what's wrong with me? Like, no, there is nothing wrong. Yeah, for sure. We, we talk so negatively to ourselves sometimes. So negative. Yeah. It's, it's crazy when I think about it, (laughs) even like my own self-talk and it was at the worst when I felt the crappiest, like what the hell is wrong with you? Why can't you just beat this habit? Um, you know, you feel crummy after this. Why do you do it anyway? And, and at the end of the day, like if you really love chips and I do love chips, like salt and vinegar (laughs) chips, I love them. Um, so it's also not about deprivation, right? Like you, you have them, it's not going to make a huge difference overall if you're having them every now and again, and really having some systems around it. So you don't eat a full, you know, family size bag, but, (laughs) but, um, but it's okay to, and I really like to build that into, into patient plans where we're talking about, okay, what are the things that you really love and give you pleasure eating? Because when I eat a little bit of chips, I'm okay. But if I eat a whole bag of chips, then there's the guilt downward spiral. And I yeah. don't feel like that. Yeah. yeah. So when we're talking about supplements mm-hmm. for women who are trying to conceive, who have PCOS, what are your top supplements that you have found that generally like works for everyone. I know, you know, we're naturopaths, we preach individualized care. It depends on what's going on. Of course, if a woman is ovulating on her own, she may not need support that way, but generally, because I think we can speak to, there's a lot of general commonalities around inflammation, around insulin resistance. Yeah. If you could speak to some of your maybe top three supplements that women with PCOS should should include or, or consider taking? Supplement-wise, obviously, like you mentioned, it depends on what the symptoms are, what the woman is feeling, and also what her blood work looks like. For blood dis- blood sugar regulation for that insulin resistance piece, inositol and berberine work beautifully, also from, from an uh, anti-inflammatory perspective, especially that berberine. Uh, vitamin D is a big one because I have yet to mm-hmm. see a PCOS patient with about adequate vitamin D and we're dosing that based on blood work. So we want um, blood levels to be over 
110, 120 nanomoles per milliliter. So that's well above the lower reference range that's listed on blood work. The lower reference range usually is at 75. Mm -hmm. um, so we want that to be higher, not just for fertility purposes, but also for um, carrying to term and having a healthy life pregnancy. And then I also really like N-acetylcysteine, which um, helps with ovulation, helps with fertility, helps with life birth rates. And it also is a precursor for one of our you know, master antioxidants in our body, glutathione. So I also love NAC and then lots of anti-inflammatory stuff, so like omega-3s. I want to go back to you when you had mentioned about AMH levels, because I was chatting in my last episode a lot about AMH and how AMH levels can change. So you're seeing women with PCOS have elevated AMH. Mm -hmm. Are you seeing those levels change after a certain period of time or after some course of treatment? So with AMH, it actually is a great diagnostic marker for, for PCOS because AMH is produced by our follicles. And when we're talking about cystic ovaries, we're actually talking about the follicles. So, so when there's a lot of follicles in our ovaries, which look like cysts on an ultrasound or which, what we call cysts on an ultrasound, um, those are producing AMH and that's why it's elevated. When we have so many follicles, mm -hmm. you're going to produce, you're going to have elevated AMH in your system. So, um, so I use it more as a, as a marker to rule, to basically diagnose PCOS? Am I measuring it again? Typically not, mm -hmm. um, especially if symptomology is changing and someone's gotten pregnant, then, then that's that. So yep. it all really depends on the case, but, but I haven't retested as of yet in any of my cases because I haven't needed to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I imagine if you improve symptoms and if you have successful ovulation, there's no need to, to go back to it. Mm -hmm. Or if, you know, a repeat ultrasound is done and there's no polycystic ovaries anymore, then that's also, uh, you can assume that, you know, AMH has gone down. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you mentioned, so we know follicles, follicles essentially are, they, they can look like cysts on ultrasounds and like it's the egg inside that's maturing as the follicle grows. And mm -hmm. so you have, so you have women with PCOS that have lots of follicles so mm -hmm. how does that translate to what happens, what's happening hormonally in terms of ovulation? Mm -hmm. So there's huge interplay with, you know, estrogen and progesterone and testosterone and insulin and luteinizing hormone and follicle stimulating hormone, basically all the hormones that you can think of. There's huge interplay that if you were to look at it, it looks like a web of like arrows that promote follicle growth and also stop follicle growth at the same time. And it prevents, prevents the release of an egg at the end of the day. So there's, your body's basically getting mixed signals. So you see all these follicles, but in order to ovulate, you have to have one follicle that actually ruptures. So the sac ruptures and releases an egg. And that's not really happening, which also means that later on you don't have enough progesterone. And going back to the dietary piece, if you're not ovulating, then it also disrupts your appetite hormones, which means that um, a lot of women who have PCOS have a harder time controlling their appetite because they're not ovulating. So it's, it's definitely an interesting interplay that's, that's happening. And it's so complex. Sometimes even uh, when I'm looking at it, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so crazy. What's, ha what's happening in this body? And this is what was happening in my body, right? <laughs> so it's, yes. it's, yeah. There's a lot of considerations and 
traditionally we've looked at LH and FSH, so luteinizing hormone and follicle stimulating hormone. And a lot of these women have higher LH to FSH ratio um, when we're looking at those hormones. However, that's not necessarily true of all women with PCOS and more and more research is showing that AMH is a better indicator. So women in the fertility, you know, who are trying to conceive, they'll use, let's say LH strips to, mm-hmm. to, to decide whether or not they're ovulating or not. So if you have a woman with PCOS mm-hmm. that, that has a higher LH, can you talk a little bit about what that's going to look like if she, if she, if she's relying on these, these LH strips? Women with PCOS have elevated luteinizing hormone for a longer period of time. So in a normal cycle, what happens is that you get this luteinizing hormone surge in the middle of the cycle and that's what leads to ovulation so it what's it's what causes your follicle to rupture and release an egg to be fertilized however with pcos because the baseline levels of luteinizing hormone or lh are elevated the opk test can be a false positive basically as in it's showing that you have luteinizing hormone but it's because you have luteinizing hormone that's elevated for a longer period of time so in those cases what um what i recommend is doing if someone is doing the um the lh strips to do it for basically like a 10 to 12 day period and you might see a positive test for a really long period of time because their baseline is elevated and, and it's not really indicative of actual ovulation so in that case, would you advise women to seek other signs of ovulation or I guess assume that perhaps they're not, they may not be ovulating that cycle? So we can, we can usually assume that they're not ovulating, but obviously when we're, you know, and I'm sure you do this too, when, when we're teaching women about like what signs and symptoms are looking for, we're talking about the whole cycle and paying attention to everything. So we're taking that with a grain of salt in terms of the symptomology that's being presented and the blood work and piecing that all together to determine whether someone's ovulating or not. And then obviously like if they're doing cycle monitoring, it makes it a little bit easier with a fertility clinic because mm-hmm. then they can see what's actually happening inside. Mm-hmm. Do you get into uh, cycle charting with your women with PCOS and what can women expect to see when they're charting in terms of, let's say, like cervical mucus or temperature? In regards to charting, I honestly teach all my women to chart. Yep. <laughs> um, it's awesome. Because, right? Because I feel like this is an area that I really feel passionate about. I'm all about period literacy, regardless of what your cycle looks like and really leaning into this changes that happen over the span of our menstrual cycle. And if the cycle is not regular, then we need to change that first before we start leaning into some of those changes, right? Like we don't want to lean into a cycle that's really painful or irregular where you're not ovulating. So charting, you know, flow quality, what that looks like, how you feel, charting the cervical mucus, basal body temperature, like all of those things I feel like are pieces of basic knowledge that every woman should know about herself Mm -hmm. and at least do for a few cycles so that you can get an idea for yourself of what's happening in your body. Uh, And it also allows you to communicate with your healthcare provider so much better when you can be like, this is what's happening in my cycle. And you Mm -hmm. can advocate better when you have a lot of self-awareness. So charting pretty much always happens in some way, shape or form. Sometimes it's really basic if they've been doing nothing and we start slow and then build up from there. So it might just look like first day of your cycle, um, when do you get symptoms, like something like that. And then uh, we can get really detailed, especially when the cycles are more regular. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
I know. I love talking about cervical mucus. I can talk about that for days. <laughs> and I, I have found that women with PCOS tend to have like more continuous mucus patterns. Mm-hmm. And it kind of all speaks to what you've been talking about, about how there's, you know, there's levels, there's inflammation, there's insulin resistance, there's a gut, there's a microbiome dysbiosis. There's, mm-hmm. there's lots of things. So when you chart regularly and you see those patterns, it gives you, you know, I say evidence from the body to help you understand and, and confirm what's going on, which, you know, supports blood work that you've had done. And then you can start to see things change, which is pretty awesome for women to get to follow their health that way. Absolutely. For sure. Aside from diet and supplements, what other tips would you recommend for women who have PCOS who are wanting to start trying for, for a baby? Or perhaps like they've already started to, to try, what do they need to know moving forward? I'd highly recommend getting a really robust healthcare team who can do a proper assessment for fertility and also for miscarriage risk. Mm-hmm. Um, because we don't like going back to that point that it's not just about getting you know, ovulating and getting pregnant. It's also about carrying to term and, and having a healthy baby. And like you said, having healthy grandbabies also. <laughs> so we want, we want to address all of that. So having a good healthcare team um, with a proper assessment is really key. And even though with fertility, there's usually this, this time pressure we feel, uh, it's definitely worth it to spend an extra few months taking that time to address the inflammation and the insulin resistance and create an environment that's conducive to healthy fertility and pregnancy. And then there's all the other things, right? Like the lifestyle pieces. We talked about stress management that doesn't only affect um, fertility outcomes, but it also impacts PCOS, right? The hormonal pieces that. And it can also affect our mindset and how we're eating, right? And our sleep and everything else. Talking about sleep, sleep is an important one. If you're not sleeping, your hormones are going to be dysregulated. That's that's just one plus one equals two. Mm-hmm. So we need to address sleep as well. And then exercise. Exercise helps us be more insulin sensitive. So Again, one of the biggest things I hear from women is I don't have time to exercise. I don't have 30 minutes to exercise. It doesn't have to be 30 minutes. Start Mm -hmm. slow and build from there. My mantra, I feel in clinic is two minutes is better than zero. So Mm -hmm. do two minutes of squats, walk across your house. If you're watching, uh, if you're watching a show, do some squats. My husband is really accustomed to this by now. Every time we watch something, (laughs) I get up and do squats every like so often. Because it's a great time, right? right? Like to do it. You're not doing anything else. You're just on the couch, usually and with really poor posture. Um, it's a great time to get up and, and do something. Um, he also finds me oftentimes doing these two-minute dance parties all by myself downstairs. And if you have children already or if you don't, um, you can do it either way. You can do it at work with your we used to do this uh, in one of the labs I used to work in. Actually, we used to have two minute dance parties. It was a great way of getting everyone out of their seats and moving. So basically with exercise, start where you are and move up from there. Put on a YouTube video, message a friend and say, Hey, we're going to do 10 squats right now. It can look like anything, but you have to start. And that's a huge piece of that insulin resistance area. And then the last one is self-compassion, right? Having a good support team apart from the healthcare team and self-compassion and self-friendship, self-love. And 
that goes back to the mindset. It goes back to stress management. It's so easy to, to lose hope with, with fertility. We take it really personally when that happens, like our body's failing us and we failed ourselves and we failed the people around us. So again, a psychologist and a psychotherapist can really play a big role. Support groups can play a good role. And also can the people around us. With fertility especially, I find that even with a supportive partner, if someone does have a partner and is going through this journey, they oftentimes aren't communicating the difficulties that they're having or the challenges that they're having because out of protection, right? Like we don't want to stress the other person. But what happens when you share is that it opens up space for the other person to share their piece as well. Mm-hmm. So, so, so all of those things are non-dietary, non-supplement that are really important when we're talking about fertility and in general, and also for PCOS. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It goes back to that all or nothing piece, right? You just got to get started. Whatever mm-hmm. brings you joy at the end mm-hmm. of the day. For sure. Um, I love talking about deep emotional connections of fertility and women's health. I mean, I especially love to talk about how our body, the, the physical things we experience or the physical symptoms we experience in our body, how it relates to something emotional that might be going on. Can mm-hmm. you offer some invite, advice for women who may be feeling defeated, overwhelmed, or even hopeless about their, about their PCOS diagnosis and what it could mean for their fertility? Mm-hmm. So yes, there's a higher risk of infertility and a higher risk for miscarriage, but it doesn't mean that the chances are zero. There's lots of support that is available to you. And Twinette, I'm sure you have transformed people's lives with PCOS. I know my life was transformed with not just medication, but with a lot of those diet, lifestyle, and support pieces. I found a naturopathic doctor for myself, and that was really helpful. It can be discouraging, but having a good support team and on all fronts, right? Like supporting yourself better, having your friends, family, other PCOS sisters, you know, they usually call themselves mm-hmm. sisters with a C-Y-S-T-E-R-S, which is cute. I like that. Um, and also like professional help. So that could be psychotherapy or a psychologist or a counselor or a social worker that helps you through that because there's, it's so multifaceted, right? And there is a higher incidence of depression in this uh, population as well. I've been there. I remember feeling so low and I can't imagine doing the work that I do today or living the life that I do today feeling like that. So it's, it's step by step. There will be highs, there will be lows. That's inevitable right? Like it's inevitable that there will be lows in this journey because lows in life's journey are very normal. So it's not a life sentence uh, and we can start working on those little pieces. We just have to have some patience and a great support team. Mm -hmm. Well said, well said. For women who want to connect with you and want to know more about Mm -hmm. how you support women with PCOS, what's the best way for them to do that? So uh, I'm active on Instagram. My handle is dr.annehussain. And then I've actually created a PCOS checklist for imaging and blood work that uh, women should be doing for fertility purposes and non-fertility purposes. So that can be found at annehussain.com forward slash PCOS checklist. Um, So that's available as well. Amazing. Those are great resources because it's really nice when 
a woman can just like take this checklist to her doctor and be like, okay, I would like these, <laughs> I would like to know these tests or, um, you know, working with practitioners who can help. Who, who yeah. Can or at least start tests. the conversation, right? Like, yeah. can we look into these tests? Um, and actually, absolutely. Run them. <laughs> absolutely. That's, yeah, that's what I, part. that's what I did. Right. Like that's how I got di- <laughs> my diagnosis. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, thank you so much, Anne, for this interview and for all of your knowledge. Uh, and yeah, it's great. It was great to chat and it was great to hear, hear all your wisdom. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Hormone Heartbeat podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe so you can be notified of all future episodes. And don't forget to check out the show notes for all guest details and your free downloadable goodies. Your feedback is important to me, so please, please leave a review so women can find and be empowered by this knowledge. If you have a topic you'd like to see discussed on the show or have a recommendation for guests you'd like to see interviewed, please get in touch by emailing thehormoneheartbeatpodcast at gmail.com.